After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in this inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephraim, Ephraim. And I buried her there on the way to Ephraim, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought him them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see their offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from their knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim to his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God whom, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, It displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Then we're going to go to verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. You stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, bringing his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice wine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord. We're nearing the end of our series on the life of Joseph. And as we near the end of the life of Joseph, we're coming first to the end of Jacob's life. And to understand what's going on here, I want you to imagine with me that after church this morning, you decide to take your family out for lunch. So you guys just go over here around the corner to Whataburger. And as you're sitting there with your family eating your Whataburger, you see me come in with my two boys, with Maddie, our seven-year-old, and Sammy, our three-year-old. And you think, oh, that's so sweet. He's taking his kids out to lunch. But you see, after we order and we come sit down and they bring us our food, that I only ordered food for myself and one of my sons. Only Maddie gets to eat. You think, well, maybe he'll share, but no, he doesn't. And they think, and then so you see me go back up and order once again. And I think, okay, well, maybe now he's getting food for Sammy, but I don't. I get a large milkshake and think, well, maybe at least they'll share the milkshake, but I don't. Maddie gets to have the whole milkshake, and you're just really uncomfortable. Especially because Sammy this whole time is just begging. He is imploring, saying, Daddy, I'm hungry. Daddy, please feed me. Daddy, why don't I get a hamburger? Daddy, why don't I get chicken nuggets? Why can't I have a shake? But I just tell him, no. I choose to feed Maddie and not you. I hope that if that happened, you would come up and rebuke me for being a terrible dad. Because that is awful. That would be incredibly wrong for me to do. But I bring that up because the, the text we're going to be looking at this morning brings up the issue of election. Of God making certain choices. And when we think about that, we often think about much like we pictured how I was treating my own children. Just for no reason at all, picking to bless one, choosing to just take care of one, while the other one screams and begs and wails and asks for attention, but is given nothing. This is not... This is not a proper way of understanding how the Bible talks about election. So in our text this morning, I hope that we see a clearer picture of it. And this morning brings, uh, the text brings to the forefront two major themes that are prominent throughout the book of Genesis, but we haven't really seen them feature very prominently in the story of Joseph thus far. And those themes are election and blessing. These two themes go together. They are married and intertwined with each other. But we don't have a problem talking about blessings. We love talking about blessing. That's great. We'd love to hear more about blessing. And we can even see how the theme of blessing runs throughout the book of Genesis. We see God's blessing on on Jacob, on Isaac, on Abraham, even on Noah as he and his family emerge from the ark and God blesses them. And, then, and even on Adam and Eve in the garden, after God makes them, he blesses them to be fruitful and to multiply. Blessing is a common theme. It is probably the greatest theme that runs throughout Genesis. And yet right along with it is the theme of election. But election, on the other hand, is more challenging for us to talk about than blessing. And in all fairness, it should be hard. This is a difficult subject to come to grips with, 
to understand what the Bible says, it should be hard for us to admit that God chooses who to save or who not to save, or in more accurately, as Genesis depicts it, who to bless and who not to bless. It's very difficult for us to understand. I realize, of course, this is a Presbyterian church. And Presbyterians, this is one of the things we're known for, is that we talk about election and predestination. But I don't want to assume this morning that I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not going to assume that we're all comfortable with this. I'm not going to assume that we have all been, always been comfortable with this, nor should we. This is a difficult subject to grapple with. And part of the difficulty is our misunderstanding of God. That's why I opened with that illustration about me taking my kids to, to, to Whataburger. We have misconceptions and misunderstandings of God and how and why he does this. We assume that God might be just as flawed in some ways as we are. We assume the wrong motives of him. But even if we have a proper view of God, even when we're not doing that, election must still not be addressed lightly. But we have to address it. We have to deal with it at some point because... When we read scripture, it's just there. It keeps showing up. God's election in scripture is unavoidable. In this passage we read this morning, we see God chose Joseph over his brothers. God chose Ephraim over Manasseh. And he chose Judah's descendants over Joseph's descendants. But we even see earlier in Genesis, we see that God chose Abel, and then he chose Seth over their older brother Cain. God chose Noah, and God chose Abraham out of all the peoples who are on the earth. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. So we see God's election, his choosing of one person of one family, or even of one specific line of descent within that family over another, this keeps happening in Genesis. It's a theme that keeps coming up. But remember that this theme of election goes alongside the theme of blessing. God elects in order to bless. He chooses those who will be blessed by him and who will carry his blessing to the nation. And before we proceed, though, looking at our text, I do want to clarify just a couple of points to clear up any misunderstandings before we move forward. And I want to do that by looking at uh, the Westminster Confession, which, uh, if you're not familiar with that, as as a PCA church, the Westminster Confession is our creedal document. It's a part of our, it forms the the theological part of our constitution as a church and as a denomination, uh, which we subscribe to in submission to and under the authority of the Word of God, ultimately, but as a good summary of what the Bible teaches. So anyway, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, says that God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, 
reverence and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. That's a long quote and a bit complex, but I'll highlight just a couple things from it. First thing is that it says that violence is not offered to the will of God's creatures. Very common misunderstanding in many of our discussions that predestination election come across as saying that our will is completely taken away. That men make no real choices. That we cannot be held responsible for our actions because it was just predetermined that we would do that. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God does not violate our will. We are still held responsible for our actions. We are called to make real choices. The Bible teaches both of these things. That God is sovereign and ordains all things and that men make real choices. Men and women have real decisions to make for which they will be held accountable. How do those things go together? I don't know and the Bible doesn't tell us. But, the, but in the wisdom of God, they do. The other thing I want to point out is that this mystery, we're told, is to be handled with special prudence and care. I don't know what your experience with discussions about this doctrine has been, but I can tell you from my own experience that most of the discussions I've been in have not been characterized by special prudence and care for others. I can tell you that for a fact because I am guilty of that. I am guilty of in these discussions having a lack of prudence, a lack of care for others to bring them assurance and comfort. So part of the difficulty then with this doctrine isn't so much the doctrine itself, but that it has been so poorly handled on our part. Finally, The effect of this doctrine should bring us humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Here's the true test of if we truly understand election. Are you humbled? Are you truly humbled? And are you driven to greater diligence in seeking after Christ? And are you provided abundant consolation? If you do not have these things, then you do not understand election. These things are available to those who sincerely obey the gospel. Remember that violence is not offered to our will. We still must make real choices and decisions. Most prominently, we must obey the call to believe in and trust in Christ as our Savior. We are not absolved of that decision. The consolation that comes from knowing election and knowing that one has been chosen by God is only for those who have trusted in Christ. There is still a call to obey the gospel. Returning then to our text, I want us to see then how God's election, when seen properly, when treated with prudence and care, can lead us to deep humility can provide us with consolation. We see that, by, that God's election is a comfort to us because God chooses to bless the weak and not the strong. 
It is comforting because also God chooses to bless the humble and not the good. And those are going to be our two points this morning. God chooses to bless the weak and not the strong, and he chooses to bless the humble and not the good. So first then, how does God choose to bless the weak and not the strong? If we look around the world today, and even if we look throughout history, we can easily see that power has tended to be concentrated in very small groups, to be focused in on small aristocratic families and dynasties. That small groups held the power over vast populations. This means that for most of world history, and even today, one's destiny and much of the world is largely decided by what family you were born into. And even more specifically, what place in that family you were born into. It's a reality of how the world is, a reality of history. And powerful, wealthy families today still operate in the same way that families did in the ancient world who had this kind of power. That by being born first... And by being born a male, one had more power. Think, for example, of England's royal family, the Windsors. When Queen Elizabeth, who, by the way, is only queen because she had no brothers, when she dies, the crown will pass to her firstborn son, Charles. When he, then he will pass it on to his firstborn son, William, who will then pass it on to his firstborn son, George. Although it's true that the English crown doesn't really possess all that much power anymore, but you get the point. We see that power tends to operate by specific rules. And it stays within certain small structures that privilege a few number of people. It favors the strong and it disadvantages the weak. That's how power tends to work in the world. But we see through our text that God, through his election does not work that way. We see in this text how God's election subverts and undermines and topples worldly aristocracies. We see this in God graciously electing the younger sons, choosing the weaker brother over the stronger We see in verses 3 and 4 how Jacob, who is here referred to as Israel, he references how God blessed him, how he promised to make him a great nation, how he called him over his older brother, his stronger, more favored brother, Esau. We see that in verse 5 how Israel adopts Joseph's two sons, and he gives them the place of his two firstborn sons, Reuben and Simeon. Those were his two oldest sons. And their place goes to Joseph's two sons. This fulfills what was foretold when this story first began. When we first met Joseph and he had these dreams about how he would rise to this position of prominence over his brother, we already saw that partially when the brothers came to Egypt asking for food and they bowed down before him. Here, that is a legal, ultimate reality. It has happened. Joseph has now officially become the firstborn son through the adoption of his two sons receiving the rights of the firstborn. And he even receives a double portion through his son. So he's not just given the rights of the firstborn, but the first and secondborn. 
And it was common in, back in those days that the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance, more twice as much as any of the other sons would receive. So this becomes official. But God isn't done there. It's not just that he chose Jacob. It's not just that he chose Joseph. He also directs Israel to bless Ephraim, Joseph's younger son, over his big brother Manasseh. And an ironic, in such an ironic twist here, Joseph doesn't like this. (laughs) The text literally says this was evil in Joseph's eyes. As if to say, it's okay that as the 11th son, I get all the privileges and the rights of the firstborn. I'm cool with that, but don't do that with my kids. The patterns and rules of how power is used and passed on in this world are so deeply entrenched that we don't realize it. Joseph didn't realize it. But God's electing grace, his choices reverse the world's normal placement of power. And God demonstrates this even more clearly. He demonstrates it most clearly in the way in which Jesus came. How Jesus, the Bible calls the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that he was born at any point or created. It means that he held this position of power and prominence and authority over everything else. But Jesus did not cling to that. The Bible tells us he humbled himself. He emptied himself of that privilege, taking on the nature of a man, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of enduring death on a cross for us. This is how God's grace inverts power in this world. And what kind of power then has God granted you? Perhaps you come from an important family, a wealthy, powerful, influential family. Perhaps you went to an influential school or a prestigious school of some kind. Maybe you hold a lot of power in your place, in your position at work. We must all remember that none of us are ever so powerful that we stop needing God's grace. We are all dependent upon God choosing to bless us because in comparison to him, which one of us is strong? In comparison of the Lord and creator of the, and sustainer of the universe, which one of us really has any power at all? We are all weak. But on the other hand, if you are aware of your weakness, if you feel your powerlessness, and if throughout your life you feel like others have controlled you, exerted power over you, even mistreating and oppressing you, God sees you. God chooses those who are weak, who call out to him, who trust in him for their strength. And God chooses them to receive his blessing. But I want to add a word of caution here at this point. We may all be able to agree it's a good thing that God chooses the little guy 
that God elects the younger brother because we love, we love a good underdog story. But the problem is that we start thinking that the underdog actually deserves a chance. Think of Rudy. It's one of the most, most, most popular sports movies ever made. It's about this little, this scrawny guy who dreams one day of playing football for the University of Notre Dame. But he's young and scrawny, he doesn't have much talent, and he's really not all that bright, so just getting into Notre Dame is a big hurdle for him. But he manages to get in, he manages to get on the practice squad for the football team, and he spends years on the practice squad working harder than anyone, getting beat up every practice. And he never gets a shot until the very last game of his senior year, where he finally gets put in and he makes a big play. And the crowd goes wild. They're all chanting, Rudy, Rudy. And you're like, yay! We love the underdog story. We think he deserved that shot at glory. He deserved a chance. Joseph deserved a chance. Because he was a good guy. He just caught a lot of bad breaks. His brothers, on the other hand, were all jerks. You might be thinking to yourself, I deserve a shot at glory. Because I'm a good person. I try hard. No one appreciates me. Well, that brings us to our second point. Secondly, we see from this text that God chooses to bless the humble and not the good. Think for a minute about why did Israel choose Ephraim over Manasseh. What do we know about these two young men? We know that they're Joseph's sons, and by this point they would have been approaching about 20 years of age. We know, yes, that Manasseh was older. We know that they had an Egyptian mother, but that's about it. Are they good kids or bad kids? We don't know. Is Ephraim more obedient and Manasseh is a bit of a rebel? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We're not supposed to know because God's election of who to bless has nothing to do with their moral goodness. It is not based in any way upon their performance. It is purely and entirely upon his gracious will. We see the same thing happening earlier in Genesis 25 with Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Before they were even born, while they were still in their mother's womb, God tells Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Now it's true we find out later that Esau was a very immoral and, and, and imprudent, foolhardy, brash man. But Jacob was no moral paragon. He was no great guy. He was a liar, a cheater, and a trickster. And yes, it's true that God eventually worked on him to transform him. His grace overcame those things, but that took a long time. But the Bible tells us God chose Jacob while they were still in the womb. It had nothing to do with their moral goodness, with them, one of them deserving it more than the other. And that's hard. As Americans, we're happy to get rid of aristocracies. You know, our chant back in the day was, down with the king, right? We don't believe power should be passed on through family lines and kept in these concentrated little groups. We believe that you should be what you make of yourself. That by good behavior and by hard work, you can overcome anything. 
We think that good things should happen to good people. We think that blessings should come to those who have earned them, to those who deserve them and merit them. We've rejected aristocracy, but we've set up instead our own meritocracies. But we see here God's electing grace, subverting not only aristocracy, but also our moralistic meritocracies. Think of Jesus' words in Luke 5.32, where he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we see that beautifully manifested, beautifully illustrated here in Israel's blessing on Judah. We see how Israel promised that Judah, that, his, that the rest of the sons will one day bow down to him. He describes Judah's descent as a lineage of lions, a regal picture that the scepter shall not depart from him, that the ruler's staff will not depart from his descent. And that even the obedience of nations will come to Judah. But we've seen his history in depth. We know that Judah was a scoundrel. He was a villain. This was the man who suggested they sell their younger brother into slavery. Judah did not deserve this blessing. So Joseph may have in some way deserved, we might say, the blessing of the firstborn. But why does Judah get this greater blessing, the promise of a royal line of kingship? It's because God chooses the humble and not the good. God chooses sinners who have been humbled and broken and repented of their sin. Or we might put it perhaps more accurately... God's choices make us humble. God's election makes us humble because none of us are good. Are you aware that you've made big mistakes? Have you sinned grievously against God and against others? Do you think to yourself sometimes there is no way, there is no reason why God would ever choose me? Think again. God chooses the broken. He chooses people like Judah who have sinned but have repented, who have acknowledged their brokenness and their need for God's grace alone to bless them. God chooses those like Judah who have done nothing to deserve his blessing. Perhaps on the other hand, you might think to yourself, well, I haven't made any big mistakes. Maybe there are no skeletons in your closet because you think, well, you've made all the right choices. You have the model life. Are you proud of yourself? Are you proud of the life that you've lived do you think God would be happy to choose such a good person as you? Do you think you've earned it? Think again. God doesn't choose the good people. There are no good people. No one is good. 
Not even one. But God chooses humble people. God chooses those who are humble. Paul told the church of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See what Paul is saying? There is nobody here in this room, myself least of all, who would have been chosen by God unless we were weak, unless we were foolish, unless we were nothing. But that's who God chooses. None of us deserves that choice. But it is because of God and of His choice that we are found in Christ. And that through Jesus, we now receive wisdom. We receive righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All of these things are ours in Christ only because of God's election. So that as he says, none of us has a single thing to boast about. We only boast in the Lord. Remember that God's election and his blessing go together. That God elects in order to bless. God chose Israel. He chose Jacob and his descendants in order to bless them. And so that they would then be a blessing to the nations. God chose Joseph so that he would also be a blessing, delivering his family and saving entire nations from famine and calamity. God then chose Judah to be the ancestor of King David who was a blessing by establishing the kingship in Israel and who was then the ancestor of King Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And through him, through Jesus Christ, God's blessing of peace, of redemption, of reconciliation and eternal life with him has been proclaimed through the entire world. And it is proclaimed to you today. So that if you choose to believe him, to put your trust in him, to put your trust in our sovereign, electing, gracious, redeeming God, to trust that he is the one who has chosen and called you, if you can choose to trust that, then his blessing is also available to you. You also will receive his blessing. And like Jacob, who confessed to his children at the end of his life that God has been my shepherd all the days of my life, the God who redeemed me from every evil, 
the God who has kept all his promises to me. That same God will bless you. Will you receive his blessing this morning? Let's pray.